I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones, and today I'm talking to Colm Tobin, who has a piece in the latest issue of the LRB on the Irish novelist and short story writer John McGahan. It's a review of McGahan's letters, edited by Frank Shovlin. Colm Tobin's 10th novel, The Magician, came out last year. He has a book of poems, Vinegar Hill, forthcoming from Carcanet. Hello, Colm, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Tom, how are you? An edition of a writer's letters is, is bound to raise questions about the relationship between their life and their writing. And John McGann's childhood clearly informed his early novels. And the first letter in the book is one that he wrote as a child to his father at the age of eight. Do we recognise the writer of that letter in the children in McGann's novels? No, it doesn't seem as frightened as the children are in the books. Um, he's attempting to ingratiate himself with his father and he's talking about his uncle. But the interesting part is that this... Um, you know, establishes the idea that he was brought up with, you know, by his mother, who was who was a teacher, and his father was a policeman and lived some distance away. So the father wasn't in the household as the children were growing up. But when the mother died, when John McGahan was aged 10 or 11, the entire brood, he was the eldest, I think there were six of them, um, were all moved into the barracks in Coote Hall, where the father, I think, ran a very strict regime and it's that regime in a way that's covered in novels like The Dark and indeed um, in, in bits of the leave taking and in some of the short stories. So, no, that first letter is, is very much, um, you know, a strange letter from a son to his father who's living some distance away, sort of thanking him for presence. So it's sort of attempting to keep the peace and it's mentioning his uncle and his uncle it will become the figure, a larger than life figure called the Shah in a novel called That They Might Face the Rising Sun, which was John McGarren's last novel. And his father, who was, appears to be often to have been very angry, was also very angry when The Barracks, his first published novel, came out in 1963. And he, he called it an immoral disgrace. And what was it that, that provoked him in that way? I think the letters are, are interesting because they give us a background. Um, I, would, I would have presumed that it was The Dark, the second novel, that really caused the trouble in the household. But the barracks, John McGarren's first novel, is from a, from a biographical point of view, a very strange book. In other words, his mother is his mother dies of cancer. But what he does um, in the barracks is it's his stepmother. So in other words, his stepmother is still alive. And he gives the disease his mother died from to the stepmother and has her dying slowly in the barracks with all the stepchildren there watching. And um, I mean, it's a piece of magical thinking and um, it's beautifully written, but I don't think the beauty of the writing interested his father as much as the extraordinary invasion of the household, of the barracks itself and the children and the father and the stepmother by the eldest son who'd become a writer. In other words, he'd gone to London, which is where all the trouble starts. And he had, um, 
really every single intimate detail of their lives was in a book now that anyone could read. And uh, I think for any father in that situation, no matter how badly or well the father has behaved, this is really the sort of thing you'd fr- would freeze your blood. And he didn't, he didn't think much of London, did he? He wrote about its remorseless fog. I mean, what happened was that he arrived um, when he published the second novel, The Dark, it was banned and it was always going to be banned and it was almost the last big banning occasion in Ireland I mean they were really really growing growing embarrassed by what they were doing and they banned Catch-22 you know they banned I mean there's a translation of an 18th century poem by by Frank O'Connor they banned the translation but left in the original Irish could be read by anybody and so they picked I mean the last person they really picked on was McGarren and the problem he had was that he was also a teacher in a school. And the school, as all school, as, as most schools in Ireland still are, is owned by the Catholic Church. And it seems on instructions from the Archbishop of Dublin, it was agreed that he would be fired from his job. And because one of the other things he had done was that in the middle of all this, in between the two novels, with a fellowship and a grant, he had gone to Europe, he lived in Paris, and he had met a Finnish theatre director, um, and he had married her in a registry office and a register in Ireland that was that would be said with the hush he married her in a registry office and the teachers union said to him you know we can deal with the banning of the book but the marriage in a registry office and and so he was fired and um, he went back to the school and he was told on the first day he wasn't to come back anymore he was fired and he literally had nowhere to go I mean he had no income had made any money from the books or anything and um, he had to go to London and his job in Dublin was sort of wonderful um, he, I mean, among his students were people like Neil Jordan, the, the you know, the, five, the six-year-old Neil Jordan, the six-year-old Declan Kyber. He was, you know, th- that part of Clontarf. It was a nice job. It finished at three o'clock every day. He could go home and do his work. And he was having a nice time in Dublin. And um, suddenly he had to go to London and work as a supply teacher, meaning that if there was work in the morning, he got it. If there work, wasn't work, he didn't. And um, it was much harder work. The traveling, of course, was, was always, in, as in, usually enormous and of course it wasn't his city and of course he began to moan up yes about the 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 sheer grimness of the place the sky um the fact that sun ever appeared in the place but um it it wasn't a happy time because of course his marriage was also falling apart so that those london years although you you know from letters you also discover he's slowly seeing people you know he he was quite reclusive in, in in some ways but he was becoming friends for example with ian hamilton um, of the New Review and that French and who was publishing work of his and was seeing him regularly and that friendship lasted right through until Ian Hamilton's death so that in those years in London he did make friends that were very important for him later and of course he was always you know close to Charles Monteith who was the guy who discovered him really did discover him at Faber and really did look after him and did publish um, I mean was the editor for most of the books. And Monteith was worried about them being banned, wasn't he? That he he tried to get him to remove to remove all instances of the word fucking yeah, from the, the barracks. I mean, with the first book, with the barracks, the the F word is used, and Monteith wondered if it could be used a bit less. And McGarren did use it a bit less, and the book was not in the end banned. And um, in fact, it was quite well received the first novel, and it was quite well reviewed. 
So it, the, the first novel was a scandal only within the family, within the McGarren family, within the wider society. It was considered a very beautiful, delicate literary novel. And the first novel of, of, I think, you know, showing not only great promise, but great achievement. And, um, and so um, it, was, it, it was the second novel, um, The Dark, that um, Monteith was absolutely, absolutely sure that it would be, would, would be banned. Um, and the, I mean, the, the, the list of writers who were banned was really enormous. So, so, so it wasn't such a big, it, there was certainly nothing shameful attached to it in the world in which McGarren lived in Ireland. But of course, um, from the father's point of view, the book is a nightmare because um, in chapter three of the book, and this is the correspondence between Monteith and McGarren in the, in the letters edited by Frank Chauvin, is really fascinating because Monteith has learned that the father considered suing about the first book. But in chapter three of the second book, there is, there, there, there is a scene which makes it absolutely clear that the father, the fictional father, whoever he is, is having some sort of sexual relationship with his son, which disgusts the boy. And not only that, but later on in the later on in the novel, a priest does the same thing with the boy, as though he's sort of being passed around. And also, the the sister goes to work in a drapery shop, and she gets sexually abused by the owner of the drapery shop, who might also have been recognisable. And so, for the family, this this was really a nightmare. But of course, th this was an image that had not been released before in Ireland. It was completely new. It was so new, in fact, that people pretended not to notice it. People thought the dark, the, the issues with the dark were that the boy masturbates and the book was banned because of the masturbation, as though chapter three was so frightening and um, that it became invisible. Certainly when I was growing up, the business of McGarren was the masturbation thing, but nobody, nobody mentioned the other thing. And so um, he became known in Ireland as a writer of dirty books. My parents had three books hidden on top of a wardrobe in their bedroom. I was very good at snooping around seeing what was going on. And um, found that um, Edna O'Brien's The Country Girls, John Updike's Couples, and John McGarren's The Dark. They were, they were the three. I thought Updike was an Irish writer. <laughs> and um, the, so he became known, and he had a choice in a way. He could have really become a campaigner. He could have become a poster boy for, you know, against censorship. He could have been on, on, on every platform. Um, and um, he decided not to, he, he decided to go silent. I, th I think he was very wise. He decided to just utterly retreat and not to be seen or heard of again, really for a very long time. And uh, I, so that when I was growing up, I had no sense, even when I was in my twenties, no sense of his voice or no sense of his, his anything about him. He didn't write articles. He didn't write book reviews. He didn't come on the radio. He wasn't on TV. He just was, utterly absent he was a silent fellow and just going back to the dark and then there's that one there's a sentence that you quote from one of the letters where he says that the house was a great deal worse than the house of the book which is such a chilling sentence because the house of the book is so is so dark he, um, i think you can see right through the letters that he's often trying to distance himself from the fact that he has used what we might call real life things that happened he put them into the book, books. And then he would later on try and develop a theory that he hadn't really done this, that he had, things were much worse, that he couldn't, um, you know, that, that he, things he couldn't describe or didn't describe. So there was, there was always that much worse thing or much different 
um, he, he was very clear that he wasn't writing autobiography. And he really wasn't a particularly introspective person. But that I think the issue was that he was terribly interested in rhythm and cadence in prose. And he found that the rhythms and cadences came more naturally to him when he was describing a landscape that he knew. Um, in the early draft of his novel Amongst Women, there's a huge section set in London, describing the London that he went to um, when he was fired from his job in Dublin. And that's missing in the book because when he read back, it just wasn't working. It was, there was something wrong with it. And I, I think he realized that the, the closer he got to, his, to his, that single landscape in County Leitrim, to the lake, to the way the shadows fell, to the seasons, uh, and to certain configurations of people, that if he, if he stayed in that world, his cadences and his rhythms would seem truer or more free or more, I suppose, sonorous. So that his point would have been that the reason why he was sticking to landscapes he knew and to people that he recognized was that it made the prose come easier, not that it allowed him to be um, introspective or to examine his own psyche. I, I don't think psyche interested him. When you said that he disappeared, that he had moved back to in that time he'd moved back to to county Leitrim where he'd where he'd grown up um, yeah he um he was often mysterious about this in later years I mean really I discovered from the letters and I you know I, I saw a great deal of him you know for a while that he was in Colgate University in upstate New York much more than he ever admitted to me <laughs> and he was obviously to me that he'd merely been there a few times and he went there just to do very little but I mean, there was one season he's there for a whole academic year, which I never knew until this book. And that he had many close friendships from Colgate, which I never knew until this book. And um, so he was going to Colgate sometimes. He was um, Madeline, um, Madeline Green, whom he, whom he met in 1973, I mean, after the breakup of his, of his first marriage. She was American and um, she had an apartment in Paris and they would go to Paris. Um, but he bought a piece of land very, very close to where his mother was from in County Leitrim in the early 70s. And that really was home for the rest of his life. Um, and he, that, that, that's really where he retreated to. And for a long time, he didn't have a telephone. And he saw his headquarters. And this was a very important thing for him. His outing once a week was to the town of Enniskillen in Northern Ireland. And he had a pub that he loved there. Um, and his bank was there. And uh, th that was his headquarters. The main thing he didn't want anything to do with was Dublin. And uh, I represented Dublin. And uh, he didn't, he honestly had read, I mean, if, if you mentioned any of those authors that were famous at that time, I'm talking this period, I, I would have met him first in, I think, um, what, 87, 86, 87, that he really hadn't read anything um, that was current. And he wasn't aware of what was going on, except just slightly curious, but not much. He just he he wanted to, he wanted Dublin to be a flyover, you know, a flyover state. And in his novel, The Pornographer, which came out in 1979, which you say was the first one which you started to become interested in his work and revisited the early books, having read that, that the way Dublin's described in that, you say it could be any European city that somehow he's. Yes, it could be any rundown European city. I mean, it couldn't be Paris, <laughs> but I mean, it could be bit parts of Prague and Budapest and 
you know, one of those grainy black and white cities. And uh, he, um, I mean, when I when I started to read him, I, I was interested in Saul Bellow, and you know, I was um, interested in literature that told me something. Norman Mailer, you know, um, I was interested in all of that, and these very, um, I suppose, novels all about misery in Ireland. I was miserable in Ireland. I had been, and I presumed I would be in the future. So I sort of knew that rain. Last thing you wanted to read about. Yeah, rain, <laughs> masturbation, uh, family, your hometown, um, Catholicism, uh, provincialism, all oh, the whole business. And I thought, oh my God, when I read when I read The Dark and the Barracks, I recognized everything in both of them. Although I didn't actually have a brutal father of my own, but I knew about them. And um, anyway, um, and there, was, there, were, there were, I think, two volumes of short stories. He, he, he didn't interest me that much. I, I just, um, but, but when the pornographer came from the opening sentence onwards, this extraordinary scene where he's watching an uncle coming off a train and he's standing back in the shadow so the uncle doesn't become aware of being watched. There's a huge sort of sense of tact involved. Also, it's the boy in the city versus the uncle coming up from the country. By that time, I was living in that world. I mean, that because I was the only one of the family in Dublin, if anyone was in hospital, which they were getting to be, they were getting to that age, I would be the visitor. So that all of that's in the novel. But what's in the novel more is, is the absolute sense of, of the protagonist's pure isolation in a Dublin winter, sexual frustration, walking the streets, um, meeting the odd person in the odd pub, but, but, but none of the sort of chatter or glamour of Dublin, all missing. And I loved all that because I knew this too, that the, that the poster image of Dublin as a place, you know, that you could uh, enjoy life, where you could enjoy life, I, I, that meant nothing to me. It just wasn't true. It just wasn't like it was rubbish. And suddenly a novel came out that made it absolutely clear without trying, without, you know, dwelling on this, but just the natural hinterland of the novel, the natural emotional surround of the novel was grainy, black and white, um, pre-color photography. Um, sort of down and out sort of Dublin and uh, and the character too was sort of he was suffering there was there was no let up in the sort of gloom of the book and I really loved that and in the book does he he's a pornographer he writes these stories about the colonel and Mavis and is there some sense in which it's a re retreat or an escape for him from the world or is it sort of diving even deeper into the <laughs> I think he found a sort of metaphor for the idea of writing fiction itself, that you um, you get something. I mean, in the pornographer, there are moments that, that are happening in his own sexual life in Dublin that he puts makes into pornography very, very quickly. And it's There's almost like trip, that it's, right? it's his father's shadow talking to him. Look what you did with the real world. You made it into this ghastly and, you know, dirty book. And so he's taking what he was being accused of and, and sort of playing with it. And some of, it, some of it's very funny, but at the core of it is this idea that out of his experience, he is, he, he, he is, he is making money in this very, very strange way. And um, yes, he's a pornographer, but I mean, he was being accused of being a pornographer before he wrote the book. And on the question of his, his style, that reviewing amongst women in the LRB in, in 1990, John Lannister wrote that from the critical point of view, there's something snookering about the absolute transparency and unobtrusiveness of McGahn's style. 
And in one of the letters that you quote, he describes the writing process as a continual thread of the needle hell. And there appears to be a contradiction there, but there isn't really, is there? Because that kind of, to write prose that appears so transparent and unobtrusive is actually incredibly hard work. Yeah, he was, um, as a result, he liked very little that he read. And what he wanted was a sense of flow and a sense of flow and rhythm that seemed absolutely natural, but that described things in very, very careful detail. Um, I remember when I was going to um, Edinburgh and he got very excited because there was a painting in the National Gallery in, in Edinburgh that he loved, which was, of course, an early Velasquez painting. I, I think it's the old woman frying eggs. And he loved those early Velasquez paintings. Uh, I suppose Vermeer too, but the Velasquez more of you're getting the most ordinary face, the most ordinary moment, and you're etching it, you're pulling it in, you're putting it in light, you're putting dark behind, but you're allowing an extraordinary level of expression. And he wanted to get this in prose, but he's absolutely no interest. I suppose it comes, it's an Irish thing to some extent that it's the song, not the singer. That if you come to a song and you're a great singer, the point is to make the listener notice the song, not the singer. And someone would say that about someone. Ah, you could hear the singer more than the song. And it would be utterly contemptuous to say that about someone, singer. You could hear you're hearing the singer. And, but with him, it would be you're hearing the song. So that um, there, there, there was a great sort of, um, a, 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 I suppose, a suppression of self. And you have to remember that this was a period that was dominated by Martin Amos and the idea of that pyrotechnic style, the idea of heaping on descriptions, by coming in again with more, by you know, being all big and brave and um, modern. And um, McGarren didn't do that. <laughs> so I suppose he wasn't, um, he didn't become sort of fashionable in that way. The, 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 so that, yeah, the style is both utterly transparent and filled with hidden <laughs> rhythms and ways of hitting the reader's nervous system. And also just sometimes describing something at some length and then moving on quickly from that. So, you know, he, he did use tricks, but um, he, and he did write over and over because of course, if this isn't working, this effort to be transparent, it's awful because it seems like a sort of clunky plainness and it, it seems, uh, someone described it once to me as rural realism. <laughs> rural realism. You can't even say it, rural realism. And uh, you have to be really careful that it's not rural realism. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. And you're talking just then about light and dark and, and the influence of paintings and the battle between light and darkness, you say in the piece. And at times you describe the novels almost as if as if they were paintings. And and the bit that you quote from the beginning of 
I think the beginning of the dark describing a scene and there's a very it's very visual painterly imagination and the the letter that he wrote to his father when he was eight I don't know where he says thank you very much for the pictures I had great fun reading them and this idea of reading pictures somehow that seems to that relationship between pictures and reading and and the, this visual imagination seems to be very strong in his work yeah it was strong i mean, I mean it was um sometimes I, I had to go really quiet because i didn't want to get involved in you know i, I find big arguments about large questions too much for me uh, because i'm always sure i'm right and um he had no time at all for abstract painting he thought it was a sort of superior form of decoration I mean, this was just such nonsense that there was no point in getting involved. I just went quiet, so rural realism. But um, uh, you, you know, yes, he, yes, he, he had. He was tone deaf, um, and uh, I suppose that helps a lot sometimes. W. B. Yeats was tone deaf, um, and uh, I, I think it might help in some way that you don't have this music thing going on in you. That that it is about the actual weight of the word and the words on the page. Um, if, if you try and get, you know, the, the, everyone in the Dylan Thomas was also some, someone that you wanted to avoid. Um, so, yeah, he was um, that idea of the scene and that you could see it and that every little move in it formed part of a pattern, as did the rhythms of the sentences form part of a pattern. So that you're talking about a sort of sense of ritual as uh, this is the opening um, paragraph of the barracks in which night is coming down. And there's a fire lighting, so there's light from that. There's, there's a woman with a needle, she's, um, she's threading, so you can see the needle. And um, there are cups and plates on the table that are white. So that whiteness comes. There's a sacred heart lamp, which they would have had in those years in a house like that, that is flickering. And there's an uneasiness in the room because night has come. And what's been going on all the time is every image, every single image is an image. Of, of light that's sort of embattled light. But you don't notice it. It isn't as though this is built up so that you notice it. It, it is all part of an ordinary domestic moment. And yet, when you look at it, you realize, oh, this has to be designed. So I think when he's, you know, that it, it's a particularly beautiful piece of writing because the way that the sort of symbolic forces are there, while the domestic forces are stronger. And they seem matched and there's no author. In other words, there's no, you don't think as you're reading it, someone is trying to fool me into believing this, that you actually follow it. And um, it's, 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 as they say in America, it's pretty good. And some of, some of the letters in, the, uh, in this collection were written to you and about your own novels. So how was is, how is it sort of to read... <laughs> reading again in print, as it were, these letters from John McGann to you about, about your novels? Uh, um, you know, Frank Shavlin told me he was writing this book, or he was editing this book, and uh, he asked me if I'd any letters. Well, he knew I did, I think. And uh, what I decided to do was to give him everything he wanted, as soon as he wanted it, and, without, and make no fuss. And uh, I was glad I did that, um, even, even though, <laughs> you see, I would, um, I, I didn't want to bother him. So I didn't write him stream of consciousness letters. In other words, if I had an idea, I wouldn't, wouldn't just write him a letter about it. You know, I would leave him alone. But if I had a book out, 
I would send him the book. Now, he thought it was his duty once, he, once that ever happened to read the book and write back to you about what he thought of the book. <laughs> now, there, there has grown, I think, a sort of conspiracy between writers that you don't ever criticize another writer's book on an occasion like that. You just know how delicate things are, how difficult things are. So that if, you know, Tal X writes to you to say, or sends you a book, you don't write back to say, well, chapter three really is a disaster and you should not have written, you know, you just, you just don't do that. Like, but McGarren didn't join that company. His position was, and I, he said it to me once, that there are not lines. Um, he spoke in a very, he spoke in a very particular way. He said, there are, there are, there are enough lies being told, meaning he wasn't joining in the telling of any more. And um, so he, he was he was very nice about my first novel, um, which was which he read before it was, you know, he read before it was submitted to publishers, you know, which is very sweet of him. And um, with the other novels, then he would um, he would write me a letter. You know, always be, he's a real schoolmaster. His handwriting was beautiful, really schoolmaster's handwriting, every, every, almost like like the letters being printed out, you know, everything clear. And um, it would always begin very warmly with, you know, sending regards to various friends and various, hoping to meet soon. Always, you're making sure that we were going to keep the show on the road. And then the middle paragraph would be something about there was some part of the book he just didn't like or he didn't like it, you know, you know, there was a part that he didn't believe or, you know. And then um, I was determined, I, did, I take a view on this that I, um, you know, I, I, I even talked to Adam Mars Jones. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I just don't like the fact that someone doesn't like some of my books doesn't seem to me the very end of the world. You know, I mean, it's slightly sad on the day, but there's no need to make it to make it into a big personal vendetta business of, you know, I will never, you know, like it's just, you know, just get over it. And so I was always determined to do that. And he also didn't see it as personal either. It was about the book. So we, we maintained a friendship under these circumstances. I, I realized with other people that it was not as simple. Um, there, there's a, there's a, in early, in early parts of the letters book, there, there's, a, there's a big correspondence with, with a Northern Irish short story writer who's now gone out of fashion called Michael McLaverty. I mean, not Bernard McLaverty, Michael McLaverty. He actually was a close friend of Seamus Heaney in the early days in Belfast. And um, John eventually wrote to him about one of his books to say, I mean, the letter isn't, isn't, isn't in the book. I presume that McLaverty destroyed it, but just to say um, it, it broke the relationship. I mean, they, they, there are no more letters from Michael McLaverty. And um, McGarren writes to a researcher much later in his life to say, yes, that I just couldn't write to him to say that I liked that book. I thought the book was a mistake. And uh, so the, that, that, did end, that did end that relationship. Um, but I, I think there were other relationships that were maintained under great difficulty because he would he would write these letters and um, there was nothing you could do about it. And also, he was very. There's one where you quote he describes me. I can't remember who it was now. Describes meeting someone on a train. Oh yeah, he 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 he's he's you know he was tremendously good company. You see, he came from a generation of Irishmen and maybe men all over the world of that who were, who were born in the 1930s, who were just outlandishly boring. I remember walking up through the street of Galway one evening and looking into a pub and seeing four writers sitting there. And I thought, they are the four most boring men in Ireland. And look at them, they're having the most boring conversation. I'm getting by quickly. You know, and um, McGarren was not like that. He was absolutely great company. He was 
tremendous gossip and he was filled with malice. He was also filled with wonder. Something could absolutely enliven him that he had loved. And uh, he, in fact, there's a wonderful description of going to a reading by the French, French poet Yves Bonfoy and McGarren just loving it, just loving Bonfoy. So, I mean, it was, no matter what occurred, McGarren had an interesting take on it and he laughed a lot and he could be read outrageously funny. Um, now, uh, so um, he, yeah, he would have written to Seamus Heaney to say that on the train to Belfast, he had bumped into a poet called Porig Fierk, who, I don't know, I didn't know him. Um, but he said that it was like be, having a bucket of warm shite poured over you to be, to be in, <laughs> in Fierk's company, which, you know, really must have made, it's the sort of thing that Seamus Heaney would never have said himself. You know, he was, he was very, very cautious, but McGarren was not. And that made him tremendously. I mean, the books are very melancholy. They're very gloomy they're, and they're written in this very spare style. And you just presume um, that when you're going to meet this very gloomy man, who's going to have very little to say, and is going to, you know, just, and instead you, you meet this absolute performer who's um, tr just, um, I, I, you know, yeah, was just wonderful to be with. And his last novel, That They May Face the Rising Sun, in some ways it seems less claustrophobic than the earlier work, that it maybe seems there's you get more more of that sense. I mean, it's still the same style, and it, but it maybe gets closer to that personality of his, which is not evident in the earlier books. Yes, and oddly, it's the book of his that I like least. And, um, you know, there, there are wonderful scenes in it but it doesn't have the sort of intensity of gloom and the way things are described in the dark, the barracks, the leave-taking or, um, or amongst women. So for me, when, when he, yes, he loosens up, you're absolutely right, he loosens up and he, um, he, he becomes much more a sort of a teller of tales and a, um, fascinated by the strangeness of human behavior and all that. Um, and a much wider canvas, strangely, even though it looks like it's sort of a very small area of his in Leitrim, he allows about 10 characters to live in the book, which he doesn't do in the other novels, which are, tend to be much more focused. Uh, for me, it's the weakest of the novels. Um, but um, I didn't tell him this at the time. I mean, I'm, I'm shameless. I just didn't do it. I just couldn't face it. I just, I was a younger, I was, you know, 20 years younger than him. And I didn't think it was my role to tell him um, what I thought of his books in that way. I, if I had nothing good to say, then I thought of something that, I mean, there's always something good you can say about a book, but I did really, the books I really liked were The Pornographer and, and Amongst Women. And there's a strange thing that, that can happen to a writer. He wrote uh, one of those mistakes for any writer, which is, which is the, the hundred pager. No one wants a hundred pager. They don't know what to call it. They call it a novella. No one reads a novella. And the French knew what to do. They published it on its own. It's, it's called The Country Funeral. And the French published it on its own. And it was very successful in France. But it, the, in Faber and in America, in FSG, they published it at the very end of a book of stories, as though it had been in one of the collections. And no one noticed it. And it's, in my view, it's the best thing he wrote. And it's the most focused, the most, where the gloom, you know, is really brilliantly organized around this the, this funeral of this uncle and um it's i think the best written of of the office fiction but it's something that no one no i never meet anyone else who's read it who's even read it 
because he made that mistake of putting it into the collective stories as, a, as an additional story with a few others that weren't so good. You know, that sort of extra thing you have to be, publishers say, do you have any acting extra for collected stories? And the answer is going to be, no, I do not. I have no, no, nothing. Uh, the, but he gave in and he gave them a few stories, two of which were not very good. And this was which was his really his masterpiece in life. And his, his very last book was, was a memoir called Memoir. And elements of that would have been familiar to readers of, of the barracks or the leave taking. And there are whole paragraphs that are almost lifted from, especially from the leave taking, aren't they? With just a few words changed, sort of edited paragraphs from that. Yeah, I was I was fascinated by this, and I gave a lecture, and I became a nerd on the subject of him, you know. And I found uh, that he wasn't the only offender in this matter. That there's an Irish novelist called Aidan Higgins, and I'm not making this up, but Higgins um, has a big novel called Balcony of Europe, published in the '60s, and the, there's a big set scene in it. It's about you know describing the death of the mother, and then when they go to bury her. There's too much fog in the graveyard and they can't see where they're going with the coffin. And the grave diggers from across the graveyard, through the fog, shout, rottle, rottle. And then they know where to go. Higgins, in one of the autobiographical books published, you know, 40 years later, um, takes the entire passage. I mean, you're talking 10 pages and literally cut and pasted. I mean, I'm talking about a scissors cut and paste with glue. And the entire thing without the change of a word, except when it comes to the grave, grave digger shouting, it's Higgins, Higgins. So he must have crossed it out. And I thought Pierre Menard has been here, you know, like I can actually analyze the difference between this in a, in a novel and this in an autobiography. And I, could, I was doing this, I was doing my Pierre Menard stuff with, you, you know, Pierre Menard. Yeah, he's the, the book has story about the man, Pierre Menard, who writes Don Quixote. Yeah, yeah, he writes his own Don Quixote, which is actually this, exactly the same words. But of course, it being written later, it's, it's a great sort of symbolist thing and so different from the original, even though word for word is the same. And so, um, yeah, when he came to memoir, um, he began to use images from the leave taking, images which seemed right in fiction. But one particularly with where he's describing a Wren, a W-R-E-N. And uh, I thought... Like in memoir, he's talking about 60 years ago. Could you remember that there was a single bird on the branch of a tree when you're 10? And the answer is probably not, you know, but in, a, in the novel, it seemed fine. But in the, in the, in the nonfiction, it didn't. But um, I, I mean, what, what happened, I think, was that um, a cache of letters became available that hadn't been before, which were his father's letters to his mother. And, you know, after all the years, this was gold, you know, this, this was this brought the whole thing back. And presume one reason he was able to remember it was because he'd put it in the novel. Yes, I mean, yes. In other words, not only remember it, but solidify the memory. So it isn't merely memory. It's a very unusual form of memory, which is only available to a novelist, which is that you have you've taken experience and you have transformed it in some way or other. You, you've, you've added rhythm and you've probably even changed tiny little things. But in doing that, you have solidified it as not only memory, but solid memory, written down memory. And, um, and so then when you're remembering, obviously that's where you're going to go for your source, N not to the actual pre-written part, but the written part. It's a, it's a most strange idea. And maybe the written having, well, I, mean, I don't know, but I imagine that putting it into fiction, that 
that process of writing it, especially if the writing is the thread the needle hell that it was for McGahan, that maybe you're almost erasing the original memory by doing it. By the process of transforming it into fiction is is somehow yes, erasing. Yes, it certainly the... would be very hard to refind the original memory. It, it you know it would be. A very odd process and you'd have to use hypnosis and you end the piece describing i don't know if it's the, the very last time you saw him or, or one of the last times you saw him and um, in that last period he became himself and madeline invited a lot of people to stay i just think they wanted i mean having been so happy alone in that very remote place and they wanted company and um, they were very good, but I never knew who else was coming. You know, they never would tell you, so-and-so was here yesterday. They would never spread gossip like that about, oh, so-and-so was here yesterday. I mean, it would, be, it would be as though you were the only person who'd been. And um, he was fascinated by the hospital. And uh, the hospital, by the way, is in Eccles Street in Dublin. And it's built exactly on the site of the demolished house where the fictional figure of Leopold Bloom and Molly Bloom lived in Ulysses. The nuns, the nuns again, knocked down the house and built their private hospital on that corner. And I spent a lot of time in that place myself. So I'm, you know, pretty, pretty, I know the vibes, but um, he loved the hospital, the sort of life of the hospital where, you know, he, he saw the nurses as a sort of a group, like a parish or a village, and the, and the consultant, the oncologist, and the various people. You know, it's Dublin's very small, so with his oncologist, I would have known his oncologist's father and mother, you know, right. and I would have, you know, would have been in their house. Like, it's, it's that sort of world. So he saw it as a parish, and he was fascinated by how it worked. And uh, he was fascinated by the fact that he had brought Mansfield Park with him. And there was no chance of reading because the day was so busy in the hospital with all the blood pressure, the bloods, and people come to your temperature and your dinner, your tea and your breakfast. And so uh, he was fun about all that. He was very good on the subject of the hospital. And then he said that when he was first diagnosed with cancer, they said to him, as they do, um, would you like to see a counselor? And he, he was great. And I mean, I, I remember this moment because I thought this is important. Don't speak and don't think about anything else. Just make sure you remember this because you're never going to hear this again. And we were drinking whiskey. Um, I think Madeline had gone to bed. My friend Katrina Crow was there. So the three of us just sitting up late, just drinking whiskey and gossiping and talking about books. And um, I ran. I asked me if I wanted a counselor. Well, I, I ran. I ran. I can tell a counselor. And then he would go and smile. It's like, no. You want to be an awful fool not to know that we only bloom once. And then he would smile, meaning that he had had victory over the counselor, the cancer, the oncologist, the whole business by knowing a fact that we only bloom once and knowing how to say it. That in other words, that he was just passing through their care on his way somewhere else, but that it wasn't as though he was in any way shocked by like this was happening to him and uh i think that was the last time i saw him colin tobin thank you very much thank you you can read colin tobin's review of john mcgahan's letters in the current issue of the lrb along with moody al rashid on ancient mesopotamian ghosts jonathan parry on the history of british political corruption and rosa lister on faberge eggs the lrb podcast is produced by anthony wilkes the music is by kieran brunt <laughs>